morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. We will begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us so many gifts, punctuated, of course, by the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his work on the cross. We ask this morning, Father, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that we would truly bring into remembrance who he is and what he did for us at the cross, and that we proclaim his death through the preaching of the gospel. We also thank you, Father, for the word of God. Everything that you want us to know about you and your Son and the Spirit and ourselves and your plan in the past and the present and all the way to eternity and who we are as believers in Christ, it's all there for us to just go to and hear and read and learn from and be challenged by and even chastised by at times. Father, we thank you also for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, for the body of Christ all of us members of one another. And we ask this morning, Father, that as we concentrate on your word, that once again what is in our passage today would come and be added to what's already dwelling in our hearts to enrich um, how it is that you want us to see and live. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, let's stand and sing our congregation song this morning. You may be seated. As it is October 1st, it's the first Sunday of October. We are celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. And we look forward to that. We bring it into remembrance the death of the Lord. I want to read you a greeting from Pastor Adams. He sends these every week, but he wants you to hear it. So I'm going to give it to you this morning. Hi, Brother John Farley. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers and support. Thank you for the prayers and support of your whole congregation. Thank you for the blessing our healing hands of Christ's home. Our people greet you all. Please pray for us and please give my regards to your church. And there, I just did. So I just wanted to keep in, keep in mind, he's keeping us in mind as people are praying for us. And of course, we are likewise doing for that, for him and his church and so forth. All right, this morning I've been doing this. I want to give you another piece of information that you may not know, and it's on our website again. And every Sunday we, um, when we, we post the message, and we post it, and this is an example, this is last week's message, and you can click on it, but then if you keep going, you'll see this on the other side. And this is what's available to you for every message, every Sunday message, okay? You can watch the video, okay? You can also listen on audio. Now, that's if, if you're not in a place where you can watch, you can have it, whether it's uh, in the car or however you do that, you can listen to the audio. And there's also, and this is new, a PDF of the study notes. So this, the notes that I'm using right now is, is in a PDF, and that's available, too, on the website. So whether you're watching, hearing, or reading, it's all there. So I encourage you to take advantage of that as well. It'll enrich your study. I know that... Um, we meet on Sunday, but I also know that there's a lot of content here that perhaps the first time, not perhaps, the first time you're not going to get it all. So going back is a very important, really, thing to do, whether if you're taking notes or whether you like hearing or watching the video or reading or all three, it's all available to you. So please take advantage of that. All right, this morning's title is The Father is Greater Than I. It's more words that Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was go to the cross. Please turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting in verse 28. Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting on, in verse 28. John 14, 28. Give you all a moment to get there. Jesus speaking again to his disciples, continuing to speak to them. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. 
he has, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Jesus is continuing to comfort his disciples because he knows that they remain anxious about the fact that he will soon be leaving them. Last Sunday, we saw how he gave them a great gift. He gave them the gift of his peace, which is not at all how the world sees peace, but rather it's the peace that surpasses understanding, and he gave them that gift. Today, however, he will start by gently rebuking them, and we saw that, I'll go over that again. Why? Because in all of that, they're being selfish and short-sighted. In other words, they're just looking at the departure of Jesus, how it relates to them, right? And so what he's going to do is, is going to challenge them. Look at again at John 14, 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, in other words, if you were considering things from my point of view, if you're, if you're concerned about me and my well-being, okay, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, notice here that he begins by reminding them that he will, in fact, come back to them. And we've seen that he's told them that several times already. But clearly he needs to tell them again and do it in a different way, this time a more challenging way, so that they can get on with it so that they can believe what he's saying and see things from his perspective. So he's challenging here to think of somebody besides themselves. That's a great challenge to any of us. Because we tend to want to always think about ourselves and how things relate to us and how, how our concerns are, our needs, um, our inability. It's all, we're always thinking about ourselves. And we're challenged too. Like in the book of Philippians chapter 2, he says, don't think of your own needs exclusively, but also the needs of others. In fact, he, de- he defines love by that, doesn't he? He says that to, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That means I'm giving myself up for you. I'm thinking about your best interests over my own. That's love. And he's challenging them to do the same thing. And the interesting thing now is he'd previously challenged them to, to love one another, Now he's challenging them to love him, to think about things from his point of view and not just their own. And, you know, we have a problem with that. We have to also do the same thing. So essentially in verse 28, he is saying this. He's saying, be happy for me. Be happy for me. I'm going to return to my father. And this is a far better thing than remaining here on earth. Why? Because my father is greater than I am. Now, it's important that we ask a question and get an answer to it, which is, what does Jesus mean when he says that the Father is greater than he is? By the way, I'll tell you that a lot of uh, false teaching and heresy comes from the wrong interpretation of this. You know, for those who believe, who want to believe that Jesus isn't God, will go here and say, aha, Jesus said he's not as great as God. Okay? That's not at all what he's saying. What, what is he saying? Well, for one thing, he's saying this. He's saying, at first glance anyway, that he's, he's speaking to them about his humanity. Now, he had already told them that he and the Father were one. Okay? So he's already settled the fact that when it comes to deity, when it comes to the Father and the Son and the Godhead, they're identical in essence. Okay? Different people, but identical in essence. He's already told them that. So clearly, at first glance anyway, we can say, well, he's certainly saying here something about his humanity. That the humanity of Jesus. God the Father is greater than the humanity of Jesus. And certainly that's true, and there's really no argument about that. But here we need to go further. As always, we need to consider the context. He's saying, be happy for me because I'm returning to my Father. I'm returning to my Father, and then I'm going to come back to you. So it's in that context that he's saying the Father is greater than I. So so picture yourself for a minute, picture for a minute, him on earth, and then him going to the Father in heaven. The greater is there, personified by his Father. Then he's going to come back. And he's going to come back with him, as it were, what he's received from the Father in heaven. 
Okay, so that's the setting. And we need to consider when he says the father is greater than I am, we have to consider it in that context as always. Now, let's go forward. Let's go forward to chapter 17 now. Because in chapter 17, he's going to speak directly with his father, to his father. He's going to speak directly to his father. So as you might expect, there we will see more of what he means when he says the father is greater than I am. Okay, look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 4. Notice what he says to his father in this passage. I glorified you on the earth, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do on the earth. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay, he was on earth. He has accomplished the work that the father gave him to do. And now he is going to the father and in a greater way. Why? Because the father now is glorifying him together with himself. Okay, that's greater. He's going to glorify him with the very glory that Jesus had before the world was with God the father. Think about that for a minute. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying that I'm the son of God. Okay, I voluntarily left that glory of heaven to accomplish the will of my father. That's what he's saying. Well, what does it mean? It means that he came to earth and he humbled himself. He, in other words, he, didn't, he, did, he, he remained the son of God, but he humbled himself. How did he do that? By becoming man. So, that, so in, that sense, okay, he, in that sense, he left glory in heaven with his father and came down to, a, to a obediently carry out the will of the Father as a man. He humbled himself. He came to earth, and he humbled himself. Please turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Anytime I come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, I always use a different translation than the New American Standard. Okay, why do I do that? It's not arbitrary. I do that because the King James has a much better translation of this passage than the New American Standard. There's nothing holy and exclusive about a particular translation of the Bible. Get that. If you think that, then you're wrong. If you, like some people would say the King James Version is the one and only inspired text, which of course is wrong. No English text is the one and only inspired text. Why? Because the inspired text is in the Greek and in the Hebrew. But by the same token, we, you know, I, I have chosen to use the New American Standard, and basically for two reasons. One, it is, by and large, a faithful translation, pretty much word by word, verse by verse, of the Greek. And it's, and it's a translation that is, in, in the modern language that we speak, not the language of 500 years ago, 400 years ago. So that's why. But it doesn't mean that the New American Standard is holy and exclusive either. And so we can and should compare different versions, different translations of the Bible. Now, when we do that, we need to know basically where that translation came from, how it was put together. For example, there are translations today that I would never go to in terms of teaching. Why? Because they're loose translations. And in fact, a lot of times, the trans- in some cases, the translator kind of just takes his own opinion, his own view of things. And that's certainly not what we want to study from. I mean, if we want to sit down and, and have a conversation with somebody, and we say, hey, what do you, what, when you think of this verse, what do you imagine? Well, then, okay, you can tell us that. But that's not, that's not scripture. Right? That is somebody's viewpoint. So we're not going to use that. So there's different translations of different value, all in all. Okay? But none of them is the one and only and exclusive. With that in mind, now I'll read Philippians 2, 5 to 8 in the King James. Because I, I know that this is a superior translation of this particular passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he never stopped being equal with God. Equal with God, But, verse 7, he made himself 
of no reputation. In other words, he voluntarily stepped down. Okay? So in that sense, that evening when he's speaking with his disciples, isn't it true that the Father is greater than Jesus in his step down from the Son to, the, to having the Word made flesh? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Okay? Because he voluntarily did that. But he made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Even as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, he took a step down again. Why? Because he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So as a, in a sense, he made himself, he went from the Son of God to God in the flesh, okay, to, to someone who was going to go and die on behalf of others. And in so doing become the sin offering. So it was another step down. Now, I'm not saying that in the same time, I'm talking about in terms of his humbling, his voluntary submission. Okay, clearly on the cross, it's the greatest thing that anybody ever did. Okay, so that, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that if you just look at the, the, stat, the status of Jesus Christ, he voluntarily came down and down for us. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But soon he will return to his father. Right? Nobody has come up that hasn't first come down. Nobody has come down and gone back. Well, he's going to go back now. He will return to his father. And when that happens, the father will glorify Jesus with himself. In other words, he took the steps down, and now he's taking the steps back up. He never ceased to be God, but he, but he had humbled himself. But after he does the work of the Father on the cross, and then is raised from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, and now he, is, he has the full glory with the Father. So, so, so his thinking here is that the Father has had this all along. I voluntarily came down from that glory. So there, in that time, the Father's greater than I, but I'm going back, and then the Father's going to glorify me with the same glory that I had with the Father, not me, but Jesus Christ, had with the Father before the world was created. So in a sense, also, he, he has come back as the unique person of the universe, having accomplished the will of his Father. And, and by the way, he will, he will go back to the Father with those experiences that he had here as a, as a human being. He's unique in that regard. That's why he can be our advocate in heaven, right? Why? Because he has gone through everything that we've gone through as a human being, okay? So he had to humble himself to do that. But when he goes back to heaven, he has all the glory of, that he always had, plus he has now the, the experience of being a human being, perfect, but also dying for everybody, okay? So he's a perfect high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. So clearly what the Father has waiting for him is far, far greater than what Jesus had in his earthly existence. And again, so we're combining, he's going back to the Father with the Father is greater than I, and we see how it all fits together. He's talking about that glory that the Father had that Jesus voluntarily stepped down from for a time. Therefore, when he comes back, God the Father has waiting for him far greater things than Jesus had in his earthly existence. Another way of saying this is that Jesus will no longer have the limitations he placed on himself in obedience to the plan of the Father. Now, it's interesting because when Jesus goes back to the Father, the disciples will share in those greater things. That's another amazing thing to think about, right? We've seen that already, though. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 14, verse 12. You know, our passage today, he says, I'm going back to the Father and returning to him. And you should be happy for me. The Father is greater than I, and he has something for me that's far greater than this earthly existence that Jesus said, I've shared with you as my disciples. That's how you've known me. But there's something far greater, and it's with the Father. But we, too, as disciples, okay, well, the disciples were the first generation, as members of the body of Christ, 
we have a share in those greater things. And that's amazing to think about too. We have a share in what the heavenly Jesus Christ has now. When we were placed in Christ, we were given a complete Christ, if I could put it that way. Right? He is, he is, like, he is our peace. We are perfect and complete in him. But not only that, notice again, John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, simply what? Believes in him. If you're a Christian, you believe in him. The disciples, most of them, believe in him. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. It's the same thing. In other words, they should be happy not only for him, but for themselves. Because the greater things that he will have in heaven, it turns out that there's a reflection of that in how the body of Christ, or here the disciples, will be able to pray. Okay, Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whenever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice that. So now, because we've already seen that that he says the Father is greater than I, he's talking about the glory of the Father, which he'll return to. Okay? So then then the Father will continue to be glorified in the Son. How is is that going to happen now? You know how that's going to happen now? By the body of Christ on earth. That's an amazing thing to think about, that God has so designed the body so that we now, you know, have the fullness of Christ, and that's how we glorify him. One of the ways we glorify him is to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So that that Jesus returning to the Father, now we also know that when he returned to the Father, he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit indwells every believer. That's a greater thing than anybody in the Old Testament had. It's a greater thing, actually, from what the disciples that evening had. Right? There's so much more. That's why um, Jesus said, John the Baptist is the greatest man, the greatest prophet. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is what? Greater than. Why? For many reasons. One of which is that we're in union with Christ. Two, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I could go on and on. We're, we, are, we, are, we are the children of God. We, are, we have an inheritance. All those things. So that when Jesus goes to the Father, okay, the glory that he has, that he will receive as the Son who returns to his Father, would be far greater than his earthly glory. And it turns out that he is going to pray. We're going to go back in a moment to John 17. Because he's going to pray later on in that chapter about that the disciples, the believers, would see that glory. Look at John chapter 17, verse 22. John chapter 17, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. See, one of the things that glorifies Jesus is what the Holy Spirit has done as, as making us members of one another, placing us in the body just as he wills. That is a supernatural set of actions. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who is, as it were, the agent of the body of Christ glorifying Jesus in the Father. That's why he talks here about unity. He's saying, you know, one of the glorious things about the Trinity is that we're united in every respect. We think absolutely the same. We have the same objectives. We have the same essence. We're united. He's saying, now I'm going to get a picture of that on earth. And the picture of that on earth is going to be my church. Going to be the body of Christ. Because they're going to be united also. You know, the Holy Spirit set up that unity. Okay. And we're called to just keep it. (laughs) To keep it. Right. So in other words, don't mess it up basically. But in the end, that unity will prevail. Okay, Why? Because Jesus prayed for it and the Spirit is working for it. Again, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them 
Jesus in us, and you in me, the Father in Jesus, that they may be perfected in unity. How does the church mature and grow? By becoming more and more united. By being knit together with love, through love. That's how we become more united. That they may be perfected in unity, see? See, a lot of times we have a concept of what's the perfect church, you know? Well, there's no such thing. But I think if you were to go to the Christian on the street and ask, how do you know that a church is really thriving and doing what the Lord wants them to do? I want to th- now to think about the answers you may get. You get a lot of different answers, you know? You might say, well, we have thousands of people. Or we have all kinds of ministries, you see. But what's God's standard for a church being perfected? Unity, right. Are, do they have love for one another? Are they laying down their lives for one another? Are they taking the gifts, whatever they may be, that God has given them and sharing them with one another? Are they no longer just thinking about themselves, but also for the needs and the interests of other members of the body of Christ? So in other words, it's, it's looking at the body of Christ and seeing how God's miraculous work and putting that together is being shown. That's how, the, that's how a church is perfected in unity. Why? That they may be perfected in unity so that. Anytime you see so that, it's telling you the reason for what has just been said. Because it doesn't end there. You see, the purpose of our unity even is that the world may know that you sent me the world. We're going to look at it in a moment about the world. Okay, we've seen the world already. Okay, the world is that which is, which is the enemy of God in opposition to God, unbelieving. Okay, then that world will know that, that the Father sent Jesus and that the Father loves them, even as the Father loves the Son. That's what we're here to do. We're here as it were, broadcast to the world and even to the angels the miraculous love of God for us. And we do that by loving one another. It's amazing. There are things that have never been revealed before that are revealed to us so that we may in turn demonstrate to the world and to the angels who God is. And that's particularly his love and his grace. His love and his grace. Okay. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, those are believers, be with me where I am. Where is he? He's going to be in heaven with the Father. He's saying, I want the believers whom you have given me to be here with me in heaven. Why? So that they may see my glory which you have given me. In other words, he wants his disciples, the believers, to be entered into that greater thing, that far greater thing, that the Father gave to the Son, right? He wants us to share in that. He wants us to share. In one way, we will. One day, we will, right? Those whom he justified, he glorified. We are going to share in the very glory of the Son of God when we get to heaven. So that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, now let's go back again to our main passage, John 14, verse, now we're going to start in verse 29. Going to the next verse, John 14, 29. Why is he telling them these things? Why in addition here to telling them once again that he's going to return that he's also saying the Father's greater than I, that me going up there is for glorious things that are greater than you can possibly understand about who I am on earth. Why is he saying that to him? Here's why. Now I have told you before it happens. Before what happens? Before he leaves them, okay? I'm going to tell you before I'm leaving you, So that when it happens, when I leave you, you may believe. Believe what? What he just told them about where he's going and how he's going to come back. So in other words, he's saying this. I'm going to leave you, but I will return. And when I return, I will return with much greater glory 
I've told you in advance so that when I leave, you can recall that, not just that he's going to return, but with greater glory, and you can be believing that promise so that when you see him go, you're holding on to a promise that he's going to come back and it's going to be greater glory. It's going to be so much better when he returns. And even, even in the meantime, it's going to be so much better than even their experience face-to-face with the Lord on earth. In other words, he's given them great hope based on the facts about what accompanies him leaving them. See, there's that great comfort. He's going to give us the peace that surpasses understanding. That's a daily thing that we experience now. Then he's saying, and then you can look forward to my return. And then at that point, you're going to see far greater glory than you ever could possibly see or understand when I was here with you before. And not only that, as we've seen, he will come back to them. And first of all, it's going to come back after his resurrection. Remember, we saw that there's a near and a far here, like we see so much, by the way, in prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah will say something, and it will relate to something that's going to happen soon for the people of Israel, but it also relates that something's going to happen in the far future, whether it be the kingdom or even the eternal state. It's kind of the same thing here because he will come back to them for a little while after he's raised from the dead. And by the way, he will have greater glory than he had before he went into the grave. Of course he will. He'll have a resurrection body. But even that will pale in comparison to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God in heaven. Then, so he says, I'm, I'm going to come back to you, and it'll be after my resurrection, and then I'm going to go back to the Father. Because after the resurrection, he's still on earth. But then he's saying, I'm going back to the Father, too, after that. I'm going to leave you. But you know what else I'm doing? The very thing we saw at the very beginning of chapter 14, he will prepare a place for them. He's, pre- he's preparing a place for all of us now. That place is in heaven. This is in his Father's house. Right? That's a glorious thing. Again, we're not really capable okay, here on earth with these fallen bodies and these minds that are, have, cap, have limitations. We're not really capable by any extent of understanding how glorious that will be when we're in the house of the Father. We know that we're children now, but one day we're going to see the whole glory of it. And that's the, that, he's saying that over and over again, right? I want to be, I want them to be with me so that they may see my glory that you've given me. So he'll leave them for a while. He's not here now in his body, okay? But he's up there and he's prepared a place for us as he's done for the disciples. And then one day he's going to come back and he's going to receive us all to himself. And at that point, we'll be with him forever. So we have, we have that uh, in the New Testament, of course. More is revealed in the epistles, namely the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we get even more, much more information than even disciples got, right? He's going to come back. He's going to receive us to himself. We will have a resurrection body. And from that moment on, we'll be with him forever. Great, great. And that's why the, why the rapture of the church is called the blessed hope. You see, we have a hope that's even greater than the hope that he left his disciples with. Our hope is so much greater than that. Why? Because our knowledge is so much greater. You know, if I could use an analogy, let's say the fa- a father leaves his house and he says to one of his children, listen, I'm just, I'm going for a little while. I'm going to go to a couple of places. I'm going to come back. Okay, that sounds great. He's going to be back. He's going to a couple of places. Then he turns to the second child and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go away for a little while and I'm going to go to the biggest mall in the world and I'm going to buy you so many things that will make your head spin and then I'm going to come back. So who awaits with greater expectation? The first or the second one? The second one. That's us. We have even greater expectation because we know more. And we have the capacity to know more because of the Holy Spirit who indwells our heart. Isn't it something? Isn't it an amazing thing to be a Christian? It really is. And, you know, it's such a sad thing. I, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but um, somebody came to me yesterday and said they'd been to a Bible study. And they left so disappointed. And the reason why is because he said it was all on the surface. It, it was not diving into the Word of God. It was not going after it and getting everything that's there. See, that's what we're called to do. Think about it. Recently, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says the Holy Spirit is teaching us 
and he has access, right, to the very depths of God, and we have the mind of Christ available to us. Where do you think that mind is? Where are the thoughts and facts that consist of the mind that he's given us to access to? It's in God's word. So, so it, it pains me, it grieves me to see so much of the body of church today, the body of Christ today, ignoring really all of that. They remain children as a sense. Like, like, uh, like Paul told the Corinthians, he says, you remain infants, right? You're only drinking the milk, you're not going after the solid food. Well, it's important that we go after the solid food, that we're fed with that, with the meat of the word of God. Okay. Let's go back to a passage again. John 14, verse 30. John 14, 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. It's an interesting set of statements. I will not speak much more with you. Why? For the ruler of the world is coming. Well, when the ruler of the world comes, apparently Jesus won't be able to speak to them anymore. Okay, why is that? Because when the ruler of the world comes, he's going to come and he's going to inspire, if that's the right word, energize all the enemies of Christ to take him away from the disciples and to put him on trial and beat him and go to the cross. The, world, the ruler of this world is coming. But he's saying in all of that, he has nothing in me. We're going to look and see what he means when he says the ruler of this world has, is coming and he has nothing in me. Well, let's stop for a minute and think about who is this ruler? I know you don't know this answer, but I'm going to set it up anyway. The ruler of the world is the devil, Satan. By the way, when I say you already know this, I'm assuming many of you do that. But again, do you know that the majority of Christians have no idea that it's, that it's the devil who's ruling this world? Think about that. They don't know that. Because if they did, they would have a total different understanding of what we're up against. <laughs> of what it means that we are not of the world. Because the world is in the grip of the devil. You know, and, and so, so, you know, people teach in churches today that, you know, Jesus is ruling on earth. But he's not. He's ruling in heaven. He's ruling the church, and, and he certainly has the authority to rule, but for a time, he's allowing Satan, the devil, to be the ruler of this world. Okay, and that has, of course, great implications for what's going on around us. Okay, it means, for example, that we're not going to usher in the kingdom here on earth. It's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Until then, this is the devil's world. Okay, now, now for us as Christians, that's that's... That shouldn't shake us up at all. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That we have the armor of God to protect us from all of that. But why would we need the armor of God if there wasn't a spiritual enemy <laughs> that was ruling things here? Why, why, would, why would he say, in the world you'll have trouble? Because Satan is the ruler of this world. And he hates God and he hates you and hates me as Christians. The ruler of this world is the devil, Satan. And he deceives the whole world. One of the greatest things that, de- that, that, that Satan has done is deceive the whole world about his very existence, about what it means to be good, and so forth. He's deceiving the whole world. He's telling the whole world that there's many ways to God. You know, these Christians, they're, they're all too rigid and hung up and arrogant. They're talking about one way. For example, he deceives the whole world. He, he has false teachers even pen, penetrating into the church and teaching the church lies that they just believe. Right. Like Paul said, if somebody comes to you with a different gospel, you eat it all up. What's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with us is, of course, that we're human and that unlike Jesus, that we're, we're Satan has nothing in Jesus. We're going to see in a minute. Unfortunately, the devil has something in us. Okay, meaning the fallen human race. Okay. He deceives the whole world. He's the ruler of this world. I'd like you to turn now to Luke chapter 4, verse 5. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. I know someone that say he's the ruler of this world. 
I want to demonstrate it in the word of God. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verse 5. To set this up, Jesus is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. He is now visited by the devil who is trying to tempt him. Trying to tempt him for doing something that is against the word of God. That was the whole purpose of the temptation. Was for Jesus to turn away from the word, turn away from God's will for his life. Okay, This is part of that. Look at verse 5. And he led, he being the devil, led Jesus up, wherever it is, we don't know, but wherever it was, he gave him the ability to see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, you know, this is your world, but I'd like you to give it to me. Is that what he said? Absolutely not. What did he say? The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. So in other words, he is the ruler of this world, all the kingdoms of this world today, okay, whether that's so Russia, whether it's China, whether it's France, however you want to see that, all of that he has, he has now. It was handed over to him. All of, the, all of the kingdoms of the world, the whole domain, domain is more than just the locations. It has to do with the very establishment of nations, okay? All of that he can give to Jesus because he has it. He owns it. And, of course, the temptation here was, all you got to do, Jesus, to get all the kingdoms of the world is just bow down before me, right? However, what does it say in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall not have false gods before me. And that's an example of Jesus not falling for the temptation by just clinging to the word of God. And he's given us a great example in that. When we have temptations, and by the way, the temptations today will not simply be of the flesh. We certainly have that. But we'll have temptations of thinking and temptations of, of power out there that's, that's greater than us in and of ourselves, getting, trying to get us to do the same thing trying to have those deceptions in our hearts, okay? And therefore, we need the same thing. We need the Word of God, and we need to run to it and cling to it. You see, Christians today, and uh, I don't want to pick on Christians today. I suppose that's not fair. But there's viewpoints today that says we're already, we're already, we've already taken over this world, or we're in the process of taking over this world. What we have to do, for example, is to set up a Christian government in the United States, and that will help us take over this world. Well, it's delusionary, because Satan is the ruler of this world, okay? And so what, what he is saying is that, well, what I'm telling you is that Jesus was tempted for that, and he said no because of the word of God, okay? We will have temptations not to the extent that Jesus did, but along those same lines, because here he did tempt Jesus with a lust of the flesh, right? I want you to turn that stone into bread. That's a body flesh thing. But this is a spiritual thing, okay? That's what the expression spiritual warfare, okay? It's not at all maybe what you would think at first blush. It is simply things that are going on, okay, in the heavenly places, all right, right? Ephesians 6, right? The principles and powers are trying to get to us, if I can put it a very simple way. And they're trying to get to us in how we think. That's why the full armor of God is the helmet of salvation. That's why we have the, the sword of the spirit, to go, the, pot, the, 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 the one piece of offensive armor. That's why we have the shield of faith, by which shield you can stop all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, those aren't physical. By the way, those flaming arrows of the evil one are those that want to penetrate our minds and our hearts with falsehood and temptation to go away from what the Word of God has to say. So that's real, and we need to once in a while be reminded of that, not to cower in fear, but instead to cling to the Word of God and what it has to say and, and be desirous of learning and, and hearing it again and again because we know that's our protection, that in prayer, that in prayer. It's pretty simple. Oh, how powerful and oh, how necessary. 
the word of God in our hearts and prayer. Now, notice that Jesus says. Oh, I skipped one. That's okay. Yeah, I'm still going forward. When Jesus says the ruler of the world has nothing in him, he simply means that he's sinless. That's what he's saying. The ruler of this world has nothing in Jesus because Jesus is sinless. Now, are you sinless? Am I sinless? No. So what does that mean? It means that the ruler of the world has something in us. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? The world has nothing in Jesus because he's sinless. Look at John chapter 8, verse 46. John 8, 46. Jesus is sinless. Here's an example of that. His enemies are challenging him. And he asks them a question. It's a rhetorical question, meaning he and they both know the answer. Okay. John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And, of course, it's rhetorical because the answer is nobody can because he doesn't have any. If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Go forward to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is sinless. He's, he's impeccable is the fancy word. Now, he was capable of sinning while he was here on earth, but he didn't. Okay? He was sinless, remained sinless. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 18. 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, notice, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. That's the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. He's sinless but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So because he's sinless, Satan has nothing in him. Satan cannot get a hold of him in any possible way. But unfortunately, Satan does have something in fallen man. In fallen man. Now here, I want to be careful that for you to distinguish, okay, between what we were, when we were in Adam, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and who we are now in Christ. We are a completely new creation in Christ. So what I'm about to say has to do with fallen man before they believe in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. What the, the, we still, we're going to see in a minute that in dwelling, every, every person is the, sin, is the flesh, the sin, and the manifestation. We still have that, but we have the antidote, as it were. Okay, so we don't we don't we're not in the same category at all as the unbeliever. But Satan does have something in fallen man. And again, that ally is the flesh. The flesh definition, the manifestation of sin in the fallen human body. Okay. Do we still have fallen human bodies? Yeah, we do. What does that mean? Well, it means that the flesh is still in us. Okay. We still have that manifestation of sin, but we have some great things that have combated that, and we'll see that in a minute. But here's the proof that, in fact, there is a manifestation of sin in the human body. Romans 7, verse 18. Romans 7, verse 18. Satan has an ally in our bodies. It's called the flesh. We all have it. Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in him. Nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now I want to just caution you for a minute here. He is talking about trying to live up to the standards of God 
without the grace of God, without the power of the Spirit. He's trying to do it himself. And you can't. Why? Because of the presence of sin. Because of the presence of the flesh, which is more powerful than anything except one thing. And that is the Holy Spirit. Okay, but I want you to understand here, he's saying, what he's talking about is, I understand the law and the law is good and I want to keep it, but I can't. That's what he's saying. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Aha, he's finally made a separation between himself and the sin that dwells in him. That's so important. You and I have to do the same thing, okay? We have, we have flesh in our body. It's always going to try to convince us that we and the flesh are one and the same. Always going to do that. If you, have, if you do something wrong, okay, the flesh is going to come down on you and say, aha, see, you're no good. You're not righteous, you see. But in fact, it's no longer I, but the flesh in me where those thoughts and desires are coming from. But I'm separate from that. You see, as a new creation in Christ and being in Christ, we, are, we can separate the us, the real us, from what still remains in our body. What a great thing. Unbelievers can't do that. Okay. Again, but I'm, if I'm doing, verse 20, the very thing I do not want... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Well, thank God that as believers in Christ, we are no longer slaves to that. No longer slaves to the sin that dwells in our, in our bodies. In fact, the Spirit is at work trying to more and more shut down the influence of sin in our lives. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. The word of God. Also the same thing. Okay. We can actually later on in Romans 8 say we can be putting to death the deeds of the flesh by means of the Holy Spirit. Us believers can do that. We have Christ in us though. We have the spirit in our hearts. And the spirit makes war on the flesh. What a wonderful thing. What a great gift that is as a matter of fact. Okay, let's finish up in our passage this morning. John chapter 14, verses 30 to I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Jesus now explains that his love for the Father will be shown by his obedience to the Father's will. All the way to death all the way to the death of the cross. I'd like you to turn now to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 again. We were there earlier. He wants the world to know that he loves the Father. How is he going to let the world know that? By doing exactly as the Father commanded him. Obedience to his Father's will. All the way to the death of the cross. We've seen this passage already. Let's look at it again. Philippians 2.8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to what? To the will of the Father. Unto death, even the death of the cross. But so that the world may know, Jesus said, that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. All the way to death. All the way to the death of the cross. Now, I want you to recall something that we've already seen because Jesus has already been teaching about love. And he'd been teaching about love that the disciples ought to have, right? And he taught the disciples that love for him, for Jesus, is expressed in obedience to him. Can you see how there's there's the same thing going on between us and him that's going on between him and the Father, right? What Show love by obedience. 
There it is again. But now it's not talking about us and Jesus. It's talking about Jesus and his Father. Okay, go back to our passage, John 14, 31. John 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The world is what? It's the very embodiment of the power of unbelief and opposition to God. That's what the world is. Okay? It's, it's the enemy of God. It, it energizes the power of unbelief. It, it represents the, the un unredeemed world in opposition to God. Unbelievers opposing God. That's the world. And Jesus says that I'm going to show that world that I love the Father by doing exactly what the Father commanded me. Jesus is going to overcome the world. He really, In fact, he already has, but I'm talking about it from the point of view of that night. He's going to defeat the ruler of this world. But he's not going to do it by might or violence. He's going to do it by hanging on a cross. You see, he'll defeat Satan by the power of love. His love for the Father and the Father's love for him. Because that's what motivated Jesus to go to the cross, ultimately. Yeah, was it, was it love for us? Absolutely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But ultimately, Jesus going to the cross, he understood, was an expression of his love for his father, because he's obedient to the will of the father. So the world will know that Jesus loves the father because he, ha- he hung on a cross in, in obedience to what the father wanted him to do. And that's why Jesus defeats Satan in the world by the power of love. And you know what? The world will come to know this one way or another. The world now, meaning the people, all right, in opposition to God, will come to know this, that through his dying on the cross, he demonstrated his love for the Father. Now, they'll know it one of two ways. Okay? Because, by the way, we were members of the world before we became members of the body of Christ, weren't we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, operating according to the things of the prince of this world. And then we believed in Christ, and we went into that other place called Alive with Christ. Well... So there's two ways that the world will come to know that Jesus' death is in obedience to the Father and means that he loves the Father. The first way, believing in Christ. The second way is at the last judgment. One way or the other, every person is going to come to understand the meaning of the death of Christ. It's either going to be through faith in Christ or it's going to be at the last judgment. As we close now, let's just go to one more passage, back to Philippians Now we're going to look at the continuation of that. He was obedient to death, the death of the cross. Now, what comes after that? Philippians 2.9. Wherefore? Wherefore what? Because he was obedient to the Father, even to the death of the cross. Wherefore, here we go again. God hath also greatly exalted him. That's the glory that he gets now. He's given him a name which is above every name. Notice verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, the one who died in obedience to the Father and was raised from the dead and is now exalted in heaven, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone will know who Jesus is. They will know he is the Lord. And that, even the enemies of God coming to that admission, of course, is going to be to the glory of God the Father. It all comes back to glory. All right, let's close in prayer and get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we've had an opportunity to contemplate, to dwell on the amazing fact that Jesus Christ, your son, humbled himself by becoming a man, humbled himself in obedience to you, all the way to dying on the cross. And we know that you raised him from the dead. 
And we know that you have put him in the ultimate place of glory, sharing in your glory. And we know that either, either now, by people believing in your son, or at the last judgment, when every knee will bow, one way or another, every person in the world and indeed in the universe will come to understand that Jesus is Lord. So in, in that regard now, Father, let us express what we know to be true as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, Christ, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We live because Jesus Christ died. He brought us from death to life. And Jesus died for us so that we might no longer live just for ourselves. You see, Jesus died so that we might live for him. As Paul said, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died to the Lord so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. This is the fact, no matter how we want to contend who we are now. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the very life which I now live, the life that he has given me, I live, and it's in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, we know in the Gospel of John that he came that we might have life. And then he said, and have it abundantly. That that new life is unlike the old life in every possible way. And not only will you, we can have life, but we can have an abundant life in Christ. But how do we do that? Well, we just learned it. The way that we live abundantly now is by living for him. By living for him. How do we do that? Simple. We present ourselves to God as those who are dead to sin and alive to God. Or as Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay, this is not some kind of super spiritual thing, guys. We live for him by presenting our bodies to God and to one another as instruments of righteousness. That's how we live for him. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for this privilege today of celebrating the Lord's Supper by bringing into remembrance his death and by proclaiming that death. We thank you this morning, Father, also about the promise that he will return and that he will come for us and he'll meet us in the clouds and we will be with you and him forever. We know that he's defeated death. And we know, Father, that that means that we too have been victorious over sin and death and that we now can live exactly the way we were designed to live, by means of the Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you may show what that is in very practical ways in our lives this week. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Come, come Thursday, and we'll have Bible study. You can come here, or you can go on Skype. But one way or the other, we really ask you to come. That's how, you know, I mean, if you think about it, Think about it. As a ministry, we offer the word of God twice a week, if you want to look at it that way. I think you should look at it that way. 
Okay, so that means Thursday evening is the other place where you can hear the word of God. Okay, and the question is, is that important enough to you? Can you be? Can you set that priority so that you're here? And we make it easy to do that too. You know, you don't have to drive here. I like to see your smiling faces, but if that's too difficult, and I understand people's schedules, why then you should come over Skype by electronic means. Okay. And it, it, look, it's not for my benefit. really isn't. I'm going to be here. I mean, I enjoy having more people, but I'm going to be here doing it. They're one person or a thousand people. It's for your benefit that we do that. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you. We ask you that you would have the Holy Spirit challenge us at times with your, with your word so that we can move forward and experience more of that life that you have given to us, that eternal life that we can have in time by coming to know you and your son better. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty. And at that, you're dismissed. Enjoy your Sunday.